0: Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 2. The world is bad and I hates it edition. I'm Tasha Robinson, senior editor at The Dissolve. On today's show, we talk about the film industry's focus on mega blockbusters, which doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon, but which could maybe be encouraged into more diverse directions. We'll discuss dance party endings in film, what they accomplish, and whether they make us want to sing along. We have a gory new game devoted to how people die in films. And then two writers will face off with our recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. So stay tuned, Dissolvers. Back in June, at a University of Southern California panel on the future of entertainment, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas said some dire things about the state of film. Spielberg in particular talked about how the blockbuster model is dominating the industry but becoming unsustainable, and his comments launched a lot of think pieces and analysis about the future of tentpole films, including a recent Rolling Stone piece suggesting that the whole business is overblown. The number of $150 million, $250 million films that failed this summer certainly hasn't helped, which got us thinking about the summer's biggest films, which ones failed, which ones succeeded, and what it all means for the industry. Here to discuss it with me are Scott Tobias. Hello. Nathan Raven. Hello. And Keith Phipps. Hello. So what do you think, guys? One bad summer and the film industry is doomed, right?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting that we talk about it in terms of doom. And this model, if you want to correct it, it's going to take a while because it's not like the next three or four summers of big temple films isn't plotted out already. It's like trying to trying to turn a cruise ship around at this point. I mean, so-
2: Samuel L. Jackson alone has like a contract between 75 more Marvel films. Right. Uh, and those are all Marvel films that have to be made. I, I kind of look at this as being very cyclical. And I think we're in a cycle now where people are exhausted by the oversaturation of comic book movies you know over exhausted by the uh, preponderance of 3d movies that have no goddamn reason to be in 3d Uh, i think they're kind of turning away from it i mean i would love to believe that there's some amazing renaissance of independent film or edgy uh you know risk-taking studio films even but I kind of feel like things will adjust slightly, but I kind of feel like, as you sort of said, Keith, we're kind of stuck into the cycle for uh, a whole lot longer.
1: Well, it's also it's not the comic book films and the Marvel films that are really falling apart. They're kind of the exceptions to the rule in a way. What do you mean? Well, it's, it wasn't Iron Man 3 that fell apart this summer, or Man of Steel. Right. I, was,
2: I mean, I was thinking specifically about uh, myself, uh, and I was thinking of, like, your R.I.P.D., which I think is kind of an example of a film that's 3D, a film that's based on the comic book, that cost $130 million. That was just a spectacularly unappealing to audiences for a number of different reasons. I like guess even like Wolverine, which is not a bad movie and has done pretty well at the box office. Like there's just a sense of like, I've just seen this kind of movie so much as of life. Are you projecting? I don't have a whole lot of... Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally projecting. I'm, I'm 100% saying like, this is my personal feeling about these movies.
0: One of the points that the Rolling Stone piece made was there's every reason for the industry to want to make a $200 million movie that turns around and makes $400 million. Right. And right. there's much less reason to want to make a $2 million movie that that makes $4 million. The $2 million movie is much, much less of a risk. But I mean, I just don't see things changing as long as there's the opportunity to make that kind of money. People are going to be, I mean, people go to Vegas all the time. People like to gamble on the prospect of big payback. And I I really wonder if it's going to take a couple of big studios going under over too many, you know, $200 million gambles. How can they do that,
3: though? They're huge. They're too big to fail. Too big to fail. They literally are too big to fail. I don't think you can have, you know, a United Artists type situation where it just sort of crumbles. I mean, is, what, is Disney going to crumble? Is is you know, Viacom going to crumble? Well, because, because, yeah. of, because a couple of these films bomb. I mean, the, but I think you hit it on the head there. It's like there is no incentive for making a mid-budgeted, or low-budget movie from a studio system, you know, the high end is not high enough for that to happen. Right. I mean, I, and I think it's largely because uh, of international markets. No, yeah. you know, that's the types of movies they need uh, to sell in those markets, and the type of money that, that's brought in overseas. You know, that that's kind of you know whatever the cart that is dragging the horse. Or oh,
2: tell, when it, that's the thing too. Is I mean, these films that are, are perceived as disappointments, uh, even like your John Carter, you know, decide a very big movie that was heralded as yeah kind of signaling something uh, ominous for this kind of film like made hundreds of million dollars internationally so again as you kind of said of them being too big to fail i feel like there are such marketable properties uh and there's such an ingrown audience that you know there's only so much that they can fail
3: well, we had a story up the last week uh, about uh, pacific rim that was a movie that was perceived as a disappointment Domestically, that you know, and now there's talk of a sequel because it did well enough overseas. But uh, so it's hard to know what that model would be replaced with. So I don't know if it's not sustainable, what, what happens? What's the next step? That's, that's like, the yeah. one thing that makes me curious.
1: The other part of the problem is it takes a lot of money to sell a movie where you can make a low budget movie like The Conjuring which didn't cost a lot of money and made a lot of money, but it also cost a lot of money to market it. So a studio has to really believe in a small film to put a lot of money behind it just to sell it to an audience. So that is a case of a low-budget film doing well, but there's only so many slots or there's only so many films that a studio is going to get behind like that. Yeah.
0: One of the things I thought was interesting about Pacific Rim was it was almost designed more for an overseas market than for this market. You know, it was playing to the the nostalgia of Japanese monster movies, which there's a lot of here in the States, but uh, there's a lot more in Japan. So I I think you're seeing with a lot of these blockbusters more and more attempts to make them like palatable or like appealing to overseas audiences in ways that don't just have to do with content in ways that have to do with where they're shot or who's included in the cast. Here's the thing about the blockbuster. I mean, obviously it's it's late in the summer. We've seen a lot of these films and we've seen a lot of things blow up this summer. I think about this time of year, blockbuster fatigue sets in for everybody and they all start looking a little bit alike with, you know, what are you what are you going to explode to make me happy right. this week? The excitement of May gives way to the let's let's try something else of in autumn. Is is there any way to fight that? Is there any way to to spice up the blockbuster and make it more interesting, in like more appealing after we've seen three of these films in a row?
3: Absolutely, and I think the fatigue actually is actually movie to movie. Not even just the summer. I think you can watch a, watch a movie like The Lone Ranger and feel really ground down by it. You know, I, I think for one, there's a sense like we've seen everything. Uh, I remember early in the summer you wrote, wrote something. In effect, you know, you saw like the, the Golden Gate Bridge being built in the Lone Ranger and then destroyed in Pacific Rim, and you t- tweeted something. With the effect—it's nice to have closure, which I really like. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I think we're we're kind of running out of monuments and cities to destroy at this point, and we've just seen everything leveled and every possible effect. And I, I don't think, as an audience member, we we're capable of being wowed by effects alone. And uh, Brian De Palma agrees with me, based on our, <laughs> our interview. You know, I mean, th- these movies—they sort of drum it you. And I think the answer is, the way forward is almost to get back to the fundamentals. Um, you know, establishing spatial relationships, staging movies coherently. You know, The Conjuring worked on me and I presumably worked on audiences because you know where you are in the house. It's that simple. You know where you are, you know what the stakes are. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, something like Jurassic Park, you know, people remember those, the rippling water effect as much as they do, you know, the CGI dinosaurs. And so to me, the way forward is just to reject the whole Bruckheimer school of filmmaking which is all about just killing audiences with intensity and really just kind of getting back to basics in terms of filmmaking.
0: Keith, Nathan, do you have any thoughts on where you'd like to see the blockbuster go?
1: When I saw The Rock back in, was it 95 or something? Yeah. I had no idea this is how movies would be for the next, we're going on, you know, 20 years at this point. So yes, I think something a little more classically uh, structured would be uh, fine. And, you know, I, I know it hasn't necessarily paid off financially for studios to try to create new... Properties. I hate that term. Uh, this this summer, but but in the long run, you're going to run out of things to remake or reboot. I think some some new stories, some new ideas, some new characters. Right, let's let's do that. That makes sense, right? Let's, it let's, doesn't let's make, try that. It makes oh, sense
3: yeah. for us as viewers. I don't think it makes sense for studios, though, right? Because yeah. the investment is just too grand. I mean, even something like John Carter, which was a pre-existing property, you yeah. know, made a fairly musty,
4: creaky uh, right. uh,
2: <laughs> old moth. Laugh, <laughs> it's it's existing but highly, property, great grandmother might be familiar. Highly with. influential. Highly influential, influential.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yet, 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 okay, the kids maybe don't know who John Carter of Mars is. But, yeah, it's going to be – it's very costly to – I mean, RIPD is certainly right. not – a property that people know very well, and that a lot of money was spent there, and it was not a good gamble, but something like Iron Man 3, people certainly know who Iron Man is, and that's a very safe bet, and I just think we can just expect more safe bets.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, I think I, I second your call for, like, a return to craftsmanship. I think my problem with a lot of these movies is they have no personality, or if they do have a personality, it's the personality of the studio that's making it, as opposed to the director or the filmmaker. I think Wolverine is a movie that I keep coming back to, where, you know, that was directed by James Mangold, who is a craftsman, who is a really good filmmaker. And in the beginning, there was a lot of what you were talking about, kind of establishing things, you know, sort of doing the heavy lifting of telling a story. And by the third act, I felt like it just completely got away from him. And it was just monsters running around and chasing. And Scott Frank was one of the screeners. Like, these are talented people who are just kind of handcuffed by these things that, you know, they're called upon to do as not only commercial filmmakers, but people whose movies that where if Wolverine doesn't make $400 million, it will be considered a huge disappointment. Yeah, and I mean, that brings with such high expectations and so many preconceptions and so many things that you have to do that there's a limited amount of space where you can actually have a fit personality into it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's always this tension between, you know, the person making the movie, the filmmaker, and the studio. And, and, and in the case of something like Marvel, Marvel has got okay. a house style that's very yeah. rigorous. And so, it's, it, it, to me, it becomes kind of an interesting game to listen for an individual voice. Somebody somebody has a strong individual voice like Joss Whedon uh, with The Avengers like Shane or Black. Shane Black with Iron Man 3. And in both of those cases, both The Avengers and Iron Man 3, the parts of the movies I enjoyed the most were just superhero shooting the shit right <laughs> and so so it would be nice again as a viewer this i'm not speaking as a studio person but as a viewer if uh, as you say you know the personality of, of of the individual filmmaker is allowed to uh shine through just a yeah. little bit
0: All right. Superheroes shooting the shit coming to you from a mid-sized studio with a mid-sized budget next year. In case that doesn't happen, though, we'll probably be back here next year dissecting the blockbusters and figuring out that they didn't take any of Scott's advice and they're still trying to find bigger things to blow up. Thanks for talking, guys. Thank you. you. This summer, we've seen a number of non-musical films that end with big song and dance sequences, including This is the End, Despicable Me 2, and The Smurfs 2. TV Tropes calls this the dance party ending, and it's a grand old tradition going back to Shakespeare's time, at least. It's also an increasingly common way of wrapping up a movie that wants to go out with a bang. Different directors use the trope in different ways, though, so we wanted to talk a bit about our most and least favorite musical number endings, what they accomplish, and how filmmakers could be using them better. Here to discuss the topic until we wrap up with disco balls and a sing-along of M.I.I.'s Bad Girls, are Genevieve Kosky. Hi. And Nathan Rabin. yellow. So guys, basically every movie should end like Shrek with everybody singing and dancing a long time a believer,
4: right? I think all movies should be as much like Shrek as possible (laughs) in all (laughs) respects.
0: Including all of the other Shrek movies?
2: I also think that only Smash Mouth uh, music should be featured in film. Come on, y'all! Then I saw her face. (laughs) Ha ha!
0: You, know, you you joke about movies being as much like Shrek as possible, but I've, I've actually come to loathe the dance party ending in animated films, and it, it kind of feels like, I mean, even though, as I say, it goes back, it's got a grand old tradition on stage and in many, many feature films before Shrek did it, it kind of feels like Shrek set this template for animated films where so many of them now end with, and then everybody sings and dances. And it's become a huge
2: cliche, and I really kind of hate it. Since you mentioned Shrek, because I feel like so much of Shrek is about these really cheap really lazy pop culture references Uh, the first one which was a clever one the one that's kind of sort of uh clever and i felt like that's kind of the ultimate manifestation of that where it's like hey here's something that you're familiar with and i almost feel like the uh, dance party ending is when the happy ending uh, that the studios and the audiences angrily demand aren't enough you have to go on that extra 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 level of pep where people are literally singing and dancing and for me i kind of go either way and i Even though it's kind of even though it's kind of lazy, even though it's kind of pandering, I still kind of like the dance party ending. But it's a part an ending that needs to be earned. If I don't like a film, if I don't like these characters, then it just seems like uh, they're giving themselves a reward that they haven't really merited. Uh, But when I do really like a film, when I do really like the characters, it's a sense of celebration that you share.
4: I am also a little tired of it in animated films, but I actually really like it in live action films. And I think, especially in live action comedy, it kind of serves as a a stinger or a tag. There's a bit of like a non sequitur aspect to it. A lot of them kind of like break the fourth wall. It's actors breaking character. And I think that can work in the context of a comedy where it kind of absolves you of having to go out on the perfect joke or the perfect laugh line. It's kind of like this big cathartic uh, experience. I, it's I like think. a group hug. Yeah, kind of. And that, I think, can be a little cloying in animated films because there's already this remove, I guess, in animated films. or, or there's It's too close to the actual sensibility of the animated film already, I think. But with comedies, I think uh, it can kind of serve as a punctuation. Uh, you mentioned uh, the dance party ending And this is the end which is probably one of my favorite uh, movie moments of this year and uh, it also reminded me of one from a couple years back in uh, Bridesmaids where they ended with uh, everyone singing Wilson Phillips hold on and I really liked both of those examples because it kind of tied back to the story at hand because both stories are fundamentally about friendship and those are both songs that meant something to those friends so there was a reason for it it wasn't just like and now we're singing this pop song there was a little bit of like a narrative seed planted for it ladies and gentlemen here with us tonight is favorite band singing her favorite song put your hands together for Wilson Phillips really it's the last one it's the last one I know this pain why do you lock yourself up but for the most part it was just this big cathartic experience and it functioned to like get everybody back together and you you mentioned the shakespeare tradition it also kind of reminds me of stage musicals where there's a Mm, big closing number that gets everyone back on stage for their curtain call for their bows and if you kind of think of it in terms of that where the closing credits are the bows it kind of functions in the same way, just getting everyone back together and kind of celebrating like, hey, we did this, applaud, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do feel like in some cases, particularly with live action films, like you look at the end of Beetlejuice, where they're all singing and dancing to jump in the line. Sounds like that
3: you got an A in the math test.
0: He likes it. <laughs>
2: Shake, 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 Sonora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 I, shake
0: I found Sinatra. that at the time really charming because it's so unexpected to have a live action movie that is not a musical end that way. It is, as you say, kind of putting everybody in the same mental space. And you know, there's a lot of weirdness and darkness and unhappiness in that movie. And putting putting everybody in this like celebratory frame of mind, it feels like a break. It's a little bit of a break with reality in a film that has a lot of them, but it's also kind of break a break with like every. Everybody being in in different like mental places and with different goals and and just all of the unhappiness and I kind of feel like that's what made the ending of this is the end work like obviously we don't want to give anything away about it but it's a very
4: great well I I
0: actually I agree with you I like I thought it was it was really unexpected and really fun and when I say really unexpected I mean a whole lot of specifics that we're not getting into as opposed to you you'll never guess that there's a dance party ending at the end of this film and now I've just spoiled it for you
2: yeah um, and for me like a lot of what the These dance party endings are about is kind of piggybacking on audiences' affections uh, for the song. Oh, sure. Uh, As much as the film, as much as the character, and in the end, in the case of uh, "This Is the End," that is totally, totally appropriate because, like, that's that's who Seth Rogen and all these guys are. Like, it occupies a very special place uh, in their mind and in their you know, and it kind of epitomizes the self-indulgence that is kind of charming and winning. uh, In addition to being a little bit distracting.
4: Another slightly older example, but not that old, is a 40-Year-Old Virgin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where that's another dance party, although it's a little different in the, from the other ones we've been talking about in that the cast is actually singing themselves. A lot of these uh, dance party uh, endings are just lip-syncing or dancing along to the original version. So that was like a little twist on it. But, you know, it was a nice way to transition out of the inevitable ending of that movie where he finally <laughs> has sex. And here the stars, <laughs> this is <laughs> the dawning of the Age of Aquarius, the Age of Aquarius.
0: So I mean, it's kind of a transition into, like, here's the emotional state of finding, ha- finally yeah, having sex for exactly. the first time at age forty. Like, you know, just saying yay doesn't really kind of cut it. You kind of need a big ending. I, I think the um, the ending of Slumdog Millionaire, which I was people bring were, that up, yeah. yeah, people were very divided about that. But I mean, it's not a musical. It's not a Bollywood film at all. But it has a very Bollywood ending. Right. And it's just, I thought it was incredibly well choreographed. So not only do you have the surprise factor and the like, the big emotional like catharsis. Factor Factor. You also have the dazzle factor of a film that wasn't really like that oriented towards that kind of spectacle, like suddenly ending with all of the spectacle in your face.
4: Yeah, I had uh, the Jai Ho sequence uh, from Slumdog in my notes as an example of one of the rare examples of a non-comedy or non-animated or non-musical. Uh, film pulling this off. And as you mentioned, it's able to do that because of its very tenuous link to the Bollywood tradition. It doesn't have a direct Bollywood connection, but you know, there's a, these little links, you know, the setting and also uh, A.R. Raman, who uh, won the Academy Award for the music for that film, uh, he has a long Bollywood tradition. So it's earned, but it's also surprising and, as you say, cathartic. And I, I think that's one of the few dramatic films that could pull off such an ending. Alejo, It's
0: really, it's a little more difficult. I, I mean, it, I think the one of the interesting things about that ending is that it is an original song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you do something like that, uh, the ending, the dance party ending in Labyrinth also comes to mind. You know, when you have a song at the end that's kind of a piece with the other music that's been in the movie, but isn't a song that you can attach any kind of like nostalgic feelings for, that's a, a little bit more of a risk and it's a little bit harder to earn. I'd say that those two films do it. But then you have a film like Despicable Me Too, which ends with everybody singing to YMCA. Mm -hmm. And that's a film, I mean, it's a song that a lot of people like, but it's a film that already draws really heavily on your nostalgia for this song or that song or this movie moment or that movie moment. And it hits the nostalgia points over and over and over so hard. At some point, you've just you kind of got to feel like your emotions are being played with. And if you're not on board for the song emotionally, either because you don't like the song or you just don't really care about the characters singing it, then you're not going to go along with the ending at all.
4: Yeah, I think those, uh, like the animated film dance party ending, is kind of uh, endemic to the idea that, that sprung up in the last decade or so that kids' movies also need to appeal to adults in some way, uh, and the, the parents and the audience. You need to give them something. So I think, like, the idea is okay, kids like to sing and dance and jump around and clap, so this is for them, but then it's also a song that has nostalgic appeal for the parents, and so they'll uh, have that you know, laugh of recognition and everyone wins and, and yeah. the feel good the, yeah. you know the yeah. here's
0: the music that i like feel good ending.
4: Yeah. Yeah, at the I mean, same yeah. time
0: i just i feel like it's gotten so as nathan said at the very beginning it's gotten so lazy and templated and the one that most leaps to mind at the moment is uh, hotel transylvania which didn't do well at the box office i thought it was a film with a lot of charms but when they went into the dance party at the end which it was an original song based around a really lame idea throughout the movie mm-hmm. and then they turned it into i don't mm-hmm. know Know, sort of a, an r b rap number it not only felt unearned it felt it felt exhausted it felt like well we this is how these movies end this is what we have to do I don't know uh, throw something together and have them dance
2: you're my thing. Drag, you ready to throw down no no I just came closer to to hear you better oh come on just give it a try all right maybe just a little so listen all you' is for me you better crack the box string get ready to clean. Really bad uh, instances of kind of the dance party ending. Uh, kind of remind me of the scene in Ishtar, which is uh, available on Blu-ray uh, <laughs> this week. Just wanted to put in a quick plug for that, where uh, their manager uh, Jack Weston uh, tells the lead characters, um, who are really, really terrible musicians, eh, play songs people already know that way. Even if they don't like you, they'll have something to applaud at the end. And I feel like that's kind of what, you know, your Hotel Transylvania, your detectable Me are kind of doing. They're saying, hey, even if you didn't enjoy this film, you know YMCA, right? You can sing along. Look at how much fun these people on screen are having. You know, I also kind of find that uh, movies that start really strongly never do as well with critics or audiences as much as films that end really, really strongly. And, you know, kind of the dance party ending is a way of kind of literally just sending audiences out on a high sending them out with a song in their heart whether it's deserved or not
0: well short of having a big, uh, a big sing and dance along with the Ewok song to celebrate our victory over the empire I can't think of a better way to wrap this <laughs> segment up <laughs> than what Nathan just said so I think we're going to call it there and uh, let's all go to the bar and sing and dance
4: let's uh, all, all dance to our uh, dissolve podcast transition music <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right we are all tear dancing to this right now thanks Genevieve thanks Nathan thanks thank you And now it's time for a little game that Scott came up with that we're calling Knife Gun Other, in which we try to win valuable prizes based on the pain and misery and suffering of movie characters. With me today to play this game are Keith Phipps, Nathan Raven, and Scott Tobias. As you can probably hear, each one of them has a little noisemaker called a barnyard buzzer that makes a different animal noise. They will be using these to buzz in to identify how different actors in different films die. Some of them die by knife, some of them die by gun, and some of them die by other. If you can identify what the other is, in any case, you get a bonus point. So here we go with a sample round. If I was to say Bambi's mother in Bambi, <laughs> okay, I heard uh, I heard Keith Phipps with the dog sound there first. Gun. That's amazing. It's mm-hmm. incredible. You well, know your you thumbs. hear a
3: gun, but it's off screen.
0: <laughs> it still counts. I I, I don't know. Do you you yeah, think that's a marginal she case? She gets shot. Yeah, he could. I the was man, there. Maybe could have been stabbed.
3: <laughs> I think in that in that case.
0: Uh, admittedly, if somebody ran up to her and stabbed her before the shooting, it wouldn't have made much noise. But if that was just the sample round. Now we're moving on to the real, real thing, where your points can really add up. All right, ready to go, guys? Uh, number one, Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Ah, uh, that was a pretty close call. All right, yeah, I'm, keep I'm with say, the dog. What do you say?
1: That's knife, isn't it?
0: That is incorrect, sir. Nathan actually had buzzed in second.
2: All right. I'm, I'm going to go with uh, with Gunn.
0: That is correct. He is, in cool. fact, shot in the head by Jack slash the narrator.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. But he doesn't exist, though.
0: Does Spoiler. it matter? See, I thought it was a trick question. <laughs> yeah. It, it, neither does Bambi's mom. I mean, come on. Many of these characters, strangely enough, are fictional. Let's get on to the next one. <laughs> um, Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. <laughs> Nathan with the cow. Stabbed. Uh, that is incorrect. He oh. is
1: gun. Oh <laughs> that's that's
0: perfectly cromulate. Okay. He is in fact shot in the head by Chris Cooper.
1: Redemption. Do people
3: right. get like points off for getting uh, uh, answers wrong?
0: Ah, that's a good question. a good uh, what do you think, Genevieve of the game master? Uh,
4: I think they can't do that much math. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right. Well, this, this is this this affects Wait, there are uh, points involved. This affects. There are points involved. Buzz, oh, this affects uh, how I whether I buzz or not. You're discouraged from buzzing if you uh, get in points off. In your case, you're discur-
0: discouraged from cockadoo All
3: right,
1: got it. All
0: right, number 3, Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th. <clears throat> oh, that was I'm going to go with with Keith on that one. Other. And for the bonus point, what is the other?
1: Arrow. You, you've
0: got it he gets an arrow through the throat
2: oh fine
0: good one two points i, for I would have guessed machete <laughs> no that actually happens in like, machete that
2: counts, that counts as a knife doesn't wait it? which film does he count? an
0: arrow does not count as a knife what, no 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 machete no, counts a machete, counts, a machete oh. counts as a knife. well now see that, that that's where we we're gonna have to get into big debates on oh, later editions it's a of a blade how about
3: knife how about gun blade or
0: other I, I would, well i mean do you consider a sword to be a
4: knife uh, a
0: thousand medieval recreationists right now are screaming at the uh, at their earphones. <laughs> All right, go ahead. We have a
2: thousand listeners? <laughs> <laughs> no, wow. They, they just do that a lot. That's they hate awesome. technology.
0: <laughs> All right, number four Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. <laughs> Scott Tobias with your research. She's stabbed. She is not stabbed. <laughs> Nathan?
2: She is killed. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is shot this, this game by is not, Amy Archer. This game
0: is not knife-throw,
2: brother. She is murdered by Amy Archer. So I'm going to guess that she was shot.
0: No, she is, in fact, shot. She you was got shot it with a lady somewhere.
2: gun by Amy Archer.
0: All right, number five, Adrian Brody in The Village. Yes, Nathan? Uh, I'm going to guess that he was stabbed,
2: because that's how they did it in olden times.
0: He was not. No. Any guesses? All right, uh, Adrian Brody in the Village qualifies as other. He falls into a pit and dies. Ha uh,
3: ha! That's also the answer for every Disney uh, villain.
0: <laughs> and uh, the bad guys in Superman too, for for that matter. Although they don't necessarily die, they just fall into a pit to await the sequel. Number six, Michael
2: Douglas in Falling Down. <laughs> other, he uh, head trauma from falling down. <laughs> I take them titles very ending. literally you should know that about me
0: all right Keith with the possible actual answer
1: gone he is shot
0: correct, sir is uh Keith once again pulled ahead to an insurmountable lead
1: yeah, I believe
3: right before saying or right after saying I haven't gotten one right yet right? the back we've
0: we've got we've Whoa. got opportunities to catch up right. makes me think hit me all right number seven drew Barrymore in scream Scott stab that is correct. Oh. Charging ahead, here's one for you classical fans. Robert Walker in Strangers on a Train. Yes, neither. Other
2: hurled from a train. You're, you're actually surprisingly
0: <laughs> close and yet completely wrong. No! Um, it is, in fact, other. You get the point for that. Uh, anybody want to name Robert Walker's cause of death?
2: Carousel accident.
0: Yes, he dies in a tragic wow. carousel uh, accident. Again.
2: When will people learn? Carousels <laughs> is- are not for children or adults people.
0: It's strangely enough, the carousel crash is caused by a gunshot, but that's uh, that doesn't quite count. All right, number nine, Dwayne Jones in *Night of the Living Dead*. Gun. <laughs> Keith has started to sound very bored by all this <laughs> bloody, <laughs> horrible. Mistaken for name. zombie.
3: This is. This is. Keith is just like. He's like he's Michael
0: Jordan bored
1: like, with his own
3: gifts. He's watching faces of death all like, <laughs> all night long. That's all he does is watch death on screen. This is this is in his favor.
0: All right, let's leap ahead. John Cusack in The Grifters. Oh, oh it's a really memorable screen death, guys. I'm going to be disappointed. Memorable. Oh heck yes.
3: I remember what's Pardon her name. Pardon right? my potty mouth, but <laughs> uh, Nick <not> betting. Yeah, <laughs> she's
2: a love. lovely
0: young woman. Yeah, she. <laughs> Um, Oh, I'm so sad.
2: John Kielty, you mean Richard Nixon (laughs) from Lee Daniels? The Butler.
0: All right, everybody's uh, everybody's homework. I'm not going to give it away. Everybody's homework is to go home and watch The Grifters. Wow, that's a a terrific movie. I'll give you a hint. It does not involve a sack of oranges, but you you almost wish it had. All right, so we've hit ten horrible deaths, and we're at Keith with six points, Nathan with three, and Scott with a a rather sad one. Scott, how did how did your hopes of winning this game die?
3: <laughs> uh, uh, other, <laughs> I would say. Don't maybe being stupid.
0: Alright, yeah. we still have a few uh, a few opportunities for you to catch up. Let's see if you can. Number eleven, Jared Leto in American Psycho.
2: Scott? Dab.
0: Oh, Nathan.
2: Um I'm gonna guess other? Yes. Uh I guess maybe a chase. Oh, That's Cedric Batman enjoys using me. the being though All
0: right. One point one point for other oh. on uh Nathan, Keith
2: axe
0: yes he in fact uh, takes an axe piper lori in the original carry yes scott
3: uh <laughs> stabbed no no wait nope, killed nope. killed by uh sorry
0: no no you were you were right uh i was i was waiting to see if you were going to be more specific than that uh but stabbed is a, an entirely appropriate answer okay it's more knives than knives. Right, in the kitchen
3: and whatever, and she does the whole thing with the ESP and, and all the things. Yeah, this right. is why we never played Clue with screen. you, Scott. Ah, uh,
0: no, no, it was in the kitchen with the thing and the what, you know, and the stuff.
2: Shadow shot uh, in the what now?
0: All right, just a few more. Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Nathan.
2: Uh, shot. You are correct, sir. Verge of being a made man.
0: <laughs> uh, number 14, Deborah Shelton in Body Double. Brian De Palma fan? Nathan?
2: Um, She was uh, killed with a chainsaw.
0: No, that is not correct, sir. Uh, Although you get the point for other.
2: I meant drill? That is correct. There you go. Oh.
0: Okay, this is exciting, Nathan. With that, you have pulled up even with uh, with Keith. Wow. We're on the last one. Keith's <laughs> got to start paying attention again. Uh, we're at seven points for Keith. So I should for put Nathan. my
3: buzzer down, right?
2: I'm, I'm eliminated. <laughs> in no, this. You can, you no, no, you can you can spoil it. Yeah, coming spoiler. from the road. Uh, right. oh,
0: I do have a, a an extra creepy bonus round if it actually comes Ooh, to that. All right. all right, here's our final uh, question, unless Scott spoils it for everybody, which I wholeheartedly urge him to do. P.J. Souls in the original Halloween. <laughs>
1: Keith? I'm going to say
0: knife. You're incorrect. Nathan? Shot? <laughs> other. Scott, you get the point for other. Can you name how she dies? Strangulation? Yes. And uh, here, we'll give you an extra bonus point. What is she strangled with?
3: Uh, she is strangled, I
0: thought, I thought, uh, with his hands, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the old
2: fashioned. There's, uh...
0: there's an implement at hand based on what she was just doing a minute ago
2: oh they'd be talking on the phone it would oh, be talking on a phone right. always gossiping with her girlfriends about that right. dreamy John Travolta.
0: so yes PJ Souls in Halloween strangled to death with a phone cord yeah. well that means that you did in fact spoil it yes. for everybody Yay. so we're gonna move into uh, the ultra secret bonus round I don't
1: deserve it because I should know that that's PJ, <laughs> Souls. That's, that's, uh, oh, yeah. PJ Souls that's a it's a badge of shame but,
0: but I'm gonna ask you anyway let's see if uh, Scott can can extra spoil it in which case he will just walk away with uh, with 50 points in the game Okay. His, this, is, this is the Harry potter quidditch bonage round you oh wow this win is, everything. Oh, i love it
3: just dunk it and oh okay I'm it's motivated worth 150
0: now. points and Wizard magic. Saying, everybody's awesome all right all right eva axon in suspiria <gasps> yes scott tobias other no uh, so sorry you've got a 50 chance of getting it right guys who's gonna who's gonna jump on it knife <laughs> and keith gets 150 points Captures the golden snitch uh, and later gets yay. stabbed on his way home See, thought, in a tragic was, stabbing I thought it was like, a,
3: like a stained glass uh, slashing type.
0: Uh, no, uh, she is the one who is uh, gruesomely disemboweled and then mm. her friend dies when all of the glass falls right. on her. Right. So that was just a little bonus round and recommendation for Suspiria for you horrible death fans. Oh, yeah. Thanks for playing uh, Knife Gun Other, guys. Thanks. Thank you. And I look forward to the next round of this game in which you'll hear Scott Tobias say, Oh God, I know this one. <laughs>
3: I know, I know. You have to give me some time though. No more, no buzzers. Just give me about five minutes to come up with the answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the next iteration of this game is gonna be called Five Minutes with Scott thinking yep. about knives. White
3: noise with Scott's <laughs>
0: As always, we're going to be wrapping up this podcast with an edition of 30 Seconds to Sell, our recommendation segment in which we give everyone 30 seconds to explain why we should appreciate a certain film-related thing and then decide who does the best job. Uh, today we have Keith and Scott. Keith, are you ready? I am ready. All right, you have 30 seconds to convince us. Hit it.
1: I'm here to tell you that you should check out the soundtrack to the 2002 film Solaris by Cliff Martinez. Cliff Martinez uh, started out as a drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and most recently has attracted a lot of attention for his scores for uh, Spring Break and Drive. But this 2002 Steven Soderbergh film, he worked for Soderbergh a lot, is just a lovely ambient score that I use a lot when I'm writing and editing, and it's got an otherworldly quality to it that I find very pleasing. I think...
0: All right, Scott, rebuttal. Let's hear it.
1: Okay. The movies Fruitvale Station and The Way Way Back have been two of the
3: bigger indie hits of the summer, and I wanted to sell people on the idea that this stinks. (laughs) (laughs) These are movies that have persuaded viewers on the basis of story and character, but do absolutely nothing interesting as cinema. My feeling is that that, that, uh, movies cannot compete with good TV on a character and story level, and they don't have the time to do it, so we should hope and expect for more visually expressive films and not settle for something we could just as comfortably watch from home. Boom.
1: Wow, what, Scott what Tobias. Are you, what are you recommending
0: there? Scott Tobias, I'm recommending. No, 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 let's, let's, no, no. You, you can't come in after the fact and, I and said, add. I said
3: I wanted to sell people on the idea this is a bad development. I just want, or this is stinks.
2: Okay.
0: That is a difficult choice. We've got uh, we've got Keith going slightly over time and Scott going under time with an abstract concept. But I think as the host, I'm going to have to give it to Keith for for coming up with.
1: actually having something to recommend. To you. But, but thank you. <laughs> I, I feel the bar has been set very low here, and then I cleared it.
0: Wow! If I could take that back, I might just hand it over to Scott for wow. uh, for I abstract it, I expressionism. I thought we were.
3: I thought it was thirty seconds to sell. I am selling you on the idea that these movies being successful is bad
1: for movies.
0: All right, I'm going to give it to Keith for positivism and having it an actual uh, an actual thing as opposed to the world is bad and I hate it. I feel
1: like I, I got <laughs> I just got <laughs> points for filling out my name on the SATs. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And then just kind of you know didn't really matter what the answers were that because the other guy didn't.
0: Thanks for participating. Everybody gets a participation trophy, uh, but Keith gets the larger trophy of the guy with the actual, actual physical media does it for episode two of the dissolve podcast tune in in two weeks for episode three in the meantime you can experience the dissolve on twitter facebook and tumblr as well as in website form the dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith and if you want to tell Scott that he's right about the wrongness of people who like visually boring films he's Scott underscore Tobias on Twitter thanks for listening